Well, church, uh, Rob and I were, uh, and our family, we were away somewhere less cold. I don't want to brag, so I don't, that's all I'm going to say about that. And uh, we came home, and uh, on my desk, there was sitting a gift from my uncle. My uncle is a retired pastor, and he's very raw, raw Tracy. Like, you ever, do you have a person in your life who, like, just doesn't matter what you do? They're just like, oh, you're the best. He's this kind of person. Yeah, you hope, I hope you, if you don't have that person, let me know. I'll be that person for you. Um, anyway, he's, he's a great encourager and a great mentor, uh, an older pastor, of course, as well. And he, this, is, this is the gift that I had sitting on my desk. I don't know, GD, if you can see this. Can we, can we go to this camera? Can you see what it says? It says, I preach like a girl. So just hold on to your hats, friends, because I preach like a girl, and we're going to do this this morning. I don't even know what that means, but I like it, so I, I do. Uh, could, could they see it off campus, today? We're good? Okay. You're welcome, off campus. Hey, off campus, I forgot to tell you earlier, Pastor Ethan's online with you today, so make sure you say hi to him. Don't make him feel sad and lonely when he's commenting. Just say, say. I am going to move this because I feel like I'm going to be distracted by it, so I'm going to set that aside for now. So in January, we took time to construct and reconstruct our faith. Uh, and we talked about some of the major objections that people have uh, to the Christian faith. Uh, and and we, we took some time to go through them. And so if you're interested in that, of course, all of that's available on our YouTube channel. You can go back through that playlist. It's also, of course, available on our website. You can link to that. Um, so we talked about the reliability of Scripture. We talked about that, you know, is there really only one way to God? We talked about why are there rules in the Christian faith? We talked about how to understand suffering in our lives and in the world around us. And um, so if you're still with us, and of course last week was so excellent too. Um, I, 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 we, watched, we watched from vacation, we watched the live stream. Wasn't that so encouraging last week? Pastor Aaron did an excellent job putting that service together, that fifth Sunday service. I heard there was a fiasco with the balloons. I don't know what happened, but if you were here, I don't know... The balloons were out of control. I don't know what happened, but uh, we'll see. It was worth it. <laughs> so I hope your question after our January series is, okay, I understand. Okay, I understand some of those basic tenets of the faith, the, the construction and reconstruction of my faith. And so I hope your question now is, so now what? So, so what does this mean? If I do have faith and if my faith is, uh, is, is built on these foundations, uh, what do I do now? And last week, of course, was your primer. One of those things is to share your faith and um, uh, all of the great stories we heard about that. Uh, but the question, so what now, is our February. This is what we're going to be doing together now in February. If you've put your faith in Jesus and you want to follow him, um, doing it his way, the question, you know, is what does your life look like? So we're going to talk about it. Uh, we, we do already talk a lot about this, but this month we're going to frame it like this. Uh, this week, today, the heart of a disciple. Next week, um, the, the habits of a disciple. Th then the work of a disciple. And then lastly, uh, Pastor Dell's going to come and speak about the supply of a disciple at the end of February. So today, before we add any more layers to this, this disciple life, to our belief in Jesus, uh, we have to start by looking at the basic heart of someone who follows him. And, uh, and really what makes the rest of it tick. Uh, one of, the, one of the dumbest things we do as adults is to tell children to say they're sorry. Have you ever done this? Okay, I've done this, so I'm just gonna, I'll confess that. Um, why do we think this is going to do anything at all? Have you said this to your child? Say you're sorry. Say, you look at your brother and say you're sorry. What do we expect 
wants to get out of that interaction. They're, you know they're going to say, sorry, if they do anything at all. And then we're like, what do you say next? Say it like you mean it. <laughs> exactly right. Because you get, sorry, and like, say it like you mean it. What do we expect, grown-ups, from these children? Do we expect them to go, oh, you're right. I'm so sorry for hitting you in the head with that toy. Like, this is never, ever going to happen. And yet, we continually set up this expectation that, like, like the child is suddenly going to find a new meaning for the word. It's just not reality, is it? And we still do it, and we're probably going to do it till the end of time, till Jesus returns. We're going to tell kids to say they're sorry. Maybe we're just trying to build a good habit into them that, that I can accept. And sorry, of course, is proudly part of our Canadian culture, isn't it? Yep. We love it. Um, I was actually reading an article in the National Post about this. Uh, there is a graduate student at the U of W doing a, a, a um, research on the Canadian sorry, <laughs> which is hilarious. The article was great. It was fascinating. It was hilarious. And one of the quotes from it said this, the Canadian sorry is a totem of niceness with a sly undertone of superiority. <laughs> it announces both our presence and the fact that we feel slightly bad about it. So we know we understand the word sorry in our culture a little bit. But there is a lot of sorry flying around without a lot of sorrow attached to it. You know what I'm saying? It's a very different thing. And so um, when we look to scripture, we see that we have two letters in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in the city of Corinth. The, they're called very simply First and Second Corinthians, and the second one has an incredibly helpful "sorry, not sorry" in it. Uh, Paul went to Corinth, and uh, in, in in Acts we read about it in Acts 18. And after he left, things had gone wrong in the city, in the church, in that city. And so, in an attempt to mend them, Paul paid a. Uh, a flying visit to them, which seemed to only make things worse and nearly broke his heart. These are what we sort of what we're piecing together from what we know from Scripture. And so after the kind of failure of that visit, he sent Titus with a letter um, that, that, in his words, was exceptionally stern and to, to, to try to deal with what had happened when he was there. And he was so worried about the outcome of that whole situation that he actually, he was in Troas and he left what he was doing in Troas and he went out to meet Titus. He couldn't wait for Titus to come to him. He had to go out and meet Titus because Titus was there delivering the letter. He wanted to get the news as quickly as possible. So he met Titus somewhere in Macedonia and uh, he learned to his relief that the trouble was in fact over. And that the divisions were healed and all was well. Like he was so, so relieved. And so that's the background of what we're going to read here uh, about this early church in uh, the city of Corinth. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The problem with my water being not distracting is that it's now far away from me. Oh well. If you are um, in the YouVersion app, of course, you can go to more and then events and you can load up um, our service uh, for today. And these, these scriptures will already be loaded for you there. So 2 Corinthians 7, this is the context uh, that I was just discussing. And, and here is what Paul is saying about that. We're going to start in, on, in verse 8 of chapter 7. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, 
<laughs> this is my sorry, not sorry. Like I regret it, but like I don't regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. So yet now I'm happy because you were made sorry. Because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote you, it was neither on account of the one who did the wrong nor on account of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. And by all this, we are encouraged. So the letter was received. It, it hit them right in the gut. They realized that Paul was right. They made things right with God. They made things right with each other. They changed what needed to be changed. And this is the report that Titus brought back to Paul and that he's responding to in this letter, this, probably this third letter. We, you know, we don't have that middle letter, that stern one, but that's what we understand. And it's just such a great picture of what the heart of the follower of Jesus looks like. This is, it boils down to one really, really significant word you heard a few times in this passage, which is repentance. The base level of the heart of the follower of Jesus is centered around repentance. And so, yeah, this morning we are going to be talking about dealing with sin. And so why is this the first thing? Why is this the first thing for the life of a disciple? Because it's the first step for someone who wants to be forgiven and changed. If you want to be forgiven and changed, the first step is always going to be repentance, to deal with the sin in your life. Because if you don't know that you're broken, you don't know that you can be made whole. So when you understand that you're broken, you understand then what Christ has done and that this is not all there is and you can be made whole and a new person. So very simply, in case you're wondering about the word sin, uh, this is maybe a new concept for you. Sin is, I mean, there's lots of definitions of it, but for our, our purposes today, sin is human activity that is contrary to God's will. So God says X and we do Y. That's what sin is. And in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate the one fruit they weren't supposed to, they broke their relationship with God, and we call it the fall. So if you hear that term, uh, the fall, it's that Genesis 3 story of that original sin. And now we live under the consequences of that fall. We are born in, into the, we are born, every one of us, in the image of God. We are capable of goodness and love and wisdom because of that. But under that curse of sin, we are not able to live out the way that we were designed to live in that image of God and to live out in God's will. We are all under that curse of sin now, born into it. So what do we do? In the Old Testament, when you're reading through that, sacrifices were made to cover for, or uh, the word often is atone for sin, so that people could still live in a relationship with a holy, holy, holy God, a perfect God. We need to be in relationship with him, we need a way to deal with our sin. And that was how it was done in the Old Testament until in the New Testament, Jesus came and sacrificed himself once for all. The perfect sacrifice. And he made payment for 
all of our sins. So for all time, we all can choose to have a relationship and be in relationship with a perfect God and be in God's will. So here's the catch to all of this. Just like Adam and Eve, we were created with a free will. We get to choose. We get to choose what we want to do. Um, We can choose to love and to serve God, or we can choose to do things our own way. Each choice has consequences, but we absolutely do have a choice. God showed us by his love that by coming for us, uh, he he showed us that, but also um, he showed us his love for us by giving us a choice on how we want to relate to him. Not forcing the matter, not forcing a relationship with him, not forcing obedience, but inviting us to it and letting us choose. And it's a beautiful act of love from him. So since the very beginning, since the very beginning, the issue has been the heart. What's the state of your heart? What's in your heart? What's the true intention of your heart? Who rules your heart? What rules your heart? It's always been about the heart. And so in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we we learn so much about the heart of someone who has decided to follow Jesus like they had. When they were faced with their sin, he says they felt sorrow. And Paul felt sorry for their sorrow, but not sorry for their sorrow because of the good things it led to. Like, you don't want someone to be sorrowful, but you were glad that they felt sorrow so that they didn't have to be in sorrow. Do you know what I mean? That's what we're reading here. They were faced with their sin. They felt sorrow, but they had a choice in that. They had a choice in it. They could have rejected the message. They could have told Titus, thanks, but no thanks. Go back to Paul and tell him to leave us alone. They could have gone about being a church the way that they wanted to be to do whatever they wanted to do. No one was forcing them. But instead, they let Paul's words show them what was in their hearts, and they let it change them. Verse 9, if you notice here, says, For you became sorrowful as God intended. Yeah, God intended for them to feel sorrow. God intended for them to feel sorrow. Why? Because parents who love their children discipline them, right? Don't leave them to their choices. They rebuke them and they correct them and things are dealt with and can be resolved and can be corrected and can be healed and can be set right. But things that are ignored can fester and manipulate and break relationships and cause so much trouble. You know this, friends, because you probably lived in it too. I know we all have. The point of a rebuke is to enable somebody to become what they ought to be. So the question for us this morning is, when was the last time you enjoyed a good rebuke? <laughs> You're like, yeah, I got rebuked by my, by my spouse like this morning on the way to church, maybe. I don't know. Uh, when was the last time you enjoyed a good rebuke that was good for you? When was the last time that you sincerely apologized for something? When was the last time you were corrected and you made a change because of it? That's the heart of a disciple of Jesus. So I want to talk for a couple seconds about pitfalls, things that we fall into that are dangerous when we talk about repentance, and then uh, a really productive behavior coming out of it. And then we're going to go to communion together. So the first pitfall is this. I want you to be aware of this and be on your guard for these pitfalls. The first one is that you can confuse conviction with condemnation. 
So uh, recognizing you're wrong, asking for forgiveness, making a change in your attitudes and behaviors, that's a response to conviction. When you realize something is wrong, the Holy Spirit has pointed it out, maybe somebody else in your life has pointed it out, and you make a change and it leads to uh, a different behavior, that's a, that's a response to conviction. Believing that you can never do anything right, that you deserve to feel shame and guilt and that no one could ever truly love you again, that is condemnation. Scripture invites conviction for your benefit. The enemy piles on condemnation to stop you from growing. And so you have to be on your guard, friends. You have to be on your guard. And here is the litmus test for me all the time. I've, I've probably said it to you in individual conversations. Ask yourself when you hear the voices in your head, when you are being confronted with something in your life and you hear a voice, ask yourself, would Jesus say that to me? It becomes very clear very quickly. If you know anything at all about Jesus, you don't hear him saying, you never deserve to be loved again. You will never be free of this. You will never be okay. No one can ever find out about this. None of those things are true. You would never hear Jesus say that. You know it. But when you hear him say, come on, I know this is painful, but we got to walk through this. That sounds like the Lord, doesn't it? And so you can listen to that voice. Do not fall into the pitfall of mistaking conviction and condemnation, okay? The second pitfall is this. You confuse godly sorrow with worldly sorrow. Paul really deals with this here. Because godly sorrow uh, sees the sinful thing, determines not to do it again, brings it under the forgiveness, the redemption of Christ, and starts to make new decisions. That's, what God, that's the process of godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow isn't sorrow at all. It's more like uh, resentment for having been found out or called out. It's, uh, it's trying to find a way out of the consequence of your decision. If you can, that's all the better. It's, um, it's a regret for what you've lost. Maybe you regret losing the money or losing the relationship or losing your friend or losing your reputation or whatever. But it doesn't lead you anywhere. Repentance leads to salvation because it activates our part of the transaction between us and the Lord. He's offering this free gift of forgiveness and freedom. He's paid for all of it on the cross for us already. And our part of the transaction that we have to activate is this act of godly sorrow that sees what we've done and actively asks for forgiveness and is ready to walk on. Worldly sorrow doesn't do that. Worldly sorrow keeps you right where you are, keeps you in your emotion, keeps you self-righteous, keeps you hiding. And because of that, Scripture is clear, it leads to death. It doesn't lead to life. And you can really see this in the Corinthians. They, they didn't take offense at Paul's words. They considered the source. They looked at their actions. They got to work. They made sure things were put right. And verse 11, Paul's response to that is, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what a longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. They let their sorrow lead to right action and there is obvious joy when the rebuke comes and it is received with willingness to deal with the issue and to embrace the unpleasantness of it so that joy can actually be found on the other side of it. So be cautious that you understand godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. One brings life, one brings death. Pitfall three is this, you confuse correction with judgment we got to be real careful here because self-righteous thinking can take over. 
And we can see all of the things that others are doing that need a good rebuke. <laughs> I know what you're doing that needs a good rebuke, you know. Never mind me. Don't worry about me. You know, you can see it in someone else's life. I mean, didn't Jesus say, take the plank out of your own eye before you try to talk to me about stuff in my life, the sawdust, the little speck in my eye? We've got to be really cautious of this. But the other side of that is sometimes we assume someone's judging us when they're just trying to bring us the truth. We call it judgment. Don't be judging me. When really they're just bringing us what we need. Humility receives loving correction when it's given. If it's given in the word, that's great because the word is full of loving correction for us. Um, but if it's coming from another person, we don't reject that correction just because that other person is also not perfect. Only Jesus is perfect. But he uses us to help one another in this process. So don't confuse correction with judgment. The enemy wants us to fall into each and every one of these pitfalls. He wants us to be crippled by condemnation. He wants us to stay defensive and sorry that we got caught. He wants us to be too self-righteous to receive correction at all. But there is an absolutely key behavior for every follower of Christ. This is the, this is the productive behavior I mentioned earlier uh, that has the power to help us every day if we develop, um, as we develop the heart of a disciple of Jesus and to avoid these pitfalls at every turn. It can be done. Uh, uh, it's, it's best explained in James chapter 5, so let's turn there. James 5, verses 13 to 16. I love this passage. going to read these few verses here, and then we're, we'll, we'll circle back to them. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If we want all that God has for our lives, if we want to be growing in maturity and producing good fruit and being people who show Jesus everywhere, it actually starts right here. Recognizing sin, confessing it, being humbled by it, and letting it lead to real change. Did you hear what James said here in this letter? He says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Physically healed? Yeah, there's some context to that. He's talking about if you're sick, come and be prayed for. Be anointed with oil and be prayed for. That's, that's, if you've ever seen that in church, that's, this is the biblical model we have here. But healed also from the inside out in our spiritual lives, in our emotional lives, in our thinking patterns. Confess your sins to each other so that you can be healed. We like verse, uh, the back half of that verse, which is usually what we like to quote. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. Um, or in the King James, if you grew up in the church, you might have heard it. The prayer of the righteous man does what? Availeth much. Yeah, I know, I knew you know some, I knew some of your old school. You know what's going on. Avail, we love that part of it. But if you back up, what creates righteousness in your life? So that your prayer is effective, friends. It's the confession and repentance of sin. 
That's where your righteousness comes from. Not from you, like checking off a list of being awesome, although I know you guys are awesome, but um, not in the sight of a holy God, but not without Christ. The righteousness comes from Christ, and when we avail ourselves of that, we find ourselves now able to be powerful and effective in our faith and our prayer. And did you notice that James calls us to confess to other people and not just to God? I understand that's awkward. I get it. I understand that just thinking that through is an awkward thing. There's a, uh, there's a, I read this quote in a book called Four Cups by Chris Hodges. Here's what he says about this passage. Confessing to God takes care of the past. It takes care of what happened. But confessing to another person helps it to not happen again. We need changed hearts, not just changed behavior. If our hearts change, our behavior will naturally change. But most of us don't want a changed life or a changed heart. We just want changed circumstances. I know, ouch, I heard that, ouch. And so what is the result of a person who's willing to confess and stay humble and repent before God and confess their sin to someone else as well? What's the result? An effective life of prayer. Prayer that heals. Prayer that changes things. Prayers that sees miracles. Prayer that transforms your life. That's the promise of scripture here. So quite simply today, to have the heart of a disciple, we have to deal with our sin. We have to do it every day. We have to do it at every opportunity. We have to be open to it all the time. And not to keep us under this feeling of like we are never, ever going to get it right. That's again, what do we, that's a pitfall. We already talked about that. But so that everything in our life can be brought into the light of Christ, be dealt with so we can be free. That's the teaching of scripture. So what do you need to confess to God today? I don't, I don't know. I don't know what that is for you. What do you need to confess to somebody else? I don't know that either. But I just trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through his word today.